0: You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Forefront, and happy fourth week of Lent. If you can only believe, we only have two Sundays left of Lent before Easter Sunday. I don't know where time goes. But it just sort of flies by us Uh, as we go through this Lenten wilderness series. You may see there are wilderness devotionals on your chair or somewhere near next to you. Feel free to take that home with you. Uh, That's what we're going through during Lent as we reflect and consider and think about this season in our own life and faith. In my last congregation, um, there was a woman that was in her 30s who became blind when she was nine years old. And one of the times when I was visiting her, I asked her how she became blind and she shared with me about an accident she got in. And at nine years old, imagine this, waking up in the hospital and not having vision. Just sort of shocked her, changed and re-altered her whole life. And I was preaching on a text uh, that one Sunday about a, a, a man whose vision was given back to him by Jesus or given to him by Jesus by spitting in mud and then placing it on his eyes and telling him to go wash off the spit and the mud in the river. Kind of gross, right? Kind of gross. And I was one of those moments where I thought, I wonder what Zariah would think if I read this story to her as a woman who's experienced blindness. And so I took my Bible with me that day and I went over to visit her and I opened it up and I said, Sarai, I have this story I wanna read to you and I really wanna get your opinions, your lens, your perspective on this text. And so I began to read it to her. And as soon as I was done, I said, what do you think? And this is what she said, I wrote it down. She says, it doesn't matter who sinned um, that made the man blind, because in the beginning of the story, the disciples are like, is this person blind because they sinned or their parents sinned? She said, that doesn't matter. She says, but maybe this person was blind to wake other people up. Maybe there's something for people to learn from folks who are blind. Now, we could unpack the whole ideas of uh, the- theological ideas around God makes certain people suffer or to learn certain lessons or to teach people other things. Uh, there's a whole theological worldview there that I don't necessarily align with and agree, and that could be a whole sermon in and of itself. But that was Zariah's way she'd been taught about reading the Bible, that, and the way she had made sense for blindness, that it was to teach her or others a lesson. But when she shared this, it sort of opened my heart and my mind and my eyes to see this text in a new way and to begin to read the text with new meaning. And so that's what I want to invite us to do this morning. As, as, we, as we jump into this text and we read this story, uh, maybe perhaps we could find new meaning in this that maybe was never what we were taught or what we always thought it was. So let's begin reading in John chapter 9. Uh, beginning in verse 1, Jesus, uh, said, it says, Jesus was walking along and he came to a man who was blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sin or his parents' sin? Verse three, it was not because of his sin or his parents' sin, Jesus answers. I imagine him just sort of chuckling and rolling his eyes and giving like a sassy like little throwback. This is a a well-intended, perhaps, question for the time uh, that they would have been in because in that time, if something bad was to happen to you, whether that was an illness or an ailment or maybe you weren't able to have children or you lived in utter poverty, it was often believed that God or the gods, if you were Roman, uh, was punishing you that you had done something wrong, or if you hadn't done something wrong, generations were being punished as generational curses. kind of interesting to think about, I wonder if they had understood generational trauma, if they would have processed that differently. I begin to uh, read this story and realize that that for many of us, although we are well-intended sometimes, just like the disciples, sometimes we too can belittle folks who live with disabilities. We can look at them in, in a way that is sort of pitying them or perhaps even thinking that, that there's no way they could live as full of a life as we can. There's oftentimes we dismiss them or we think we know the solutions for them. And sometimes we can even, uh, I know in the charismatic traditions that I grew up in, if somebody was blind entered the church, I mean, it was like, this is going to be a good Sunday because everyone was going to gather around that person at some point and they were going to pray for healing for them to have vision. How traumatizing to walk into a church and to be targeted in that way. And I remember moments when people would be prayed over, over and over again, and they said, we're not going to leave the day until you get vision. Maybe well-intended, but boy, does that blow. Boy, does that hit hard. And the disciples' question may be well-intended for their context and their religious traditions at the time, but, but really doesn't look at the full picture, and Jesus sort of puts them in check about it. I think about uh, a quote from uh, Lyndall Bywater. She's a Christian who writes and teaches, but she's also blind herself. And she writes this really beautiful blog article about this particular story and what it's like about as living as a blind Christian in a world where people think that you should be healed or something is not right or made whole with you or that somehow God made a mistake when creating you because you looked or saw the world or lack thereof in a different way. She says this, she says, being people who are disabled meant you are, if if you were, during Jesus' time, if you were disabled, it meant that you were most likely poor, unemployed, excluded from mainstream circles of society, and just kind of cast to the outside. This is one of her quotes. She says there was absolutely no welfare state. There was there was no disability uh, uh, fund that one could could draw from to be able to support themselves. There was often no family structure. They would have often thrown you out in a way because you were cursed and they didn't want your curse upon them. She says this, so you'd have been begging on the side of the road. Your life condition would have been pretty terrible. And I think pity from Jesus in this context is probably a lot about the sense of exclusion, destitution that he saw. What if Jesus' pity here isn't for the differently abled person that they can't see, but instead his pity is for the system that has been created that has made it so hard for that person to exist in this world? What if? In my last few congregations um, I've served, I've become super aware of the accessibility of the church and the space. And the last church that I served, there was these double, double glass doors that made it very difficult for people to get in if they had any type of disability, if they were walking with a cane, if they were in a wheelchair, if they had a walker. Basically, there was no way they were going to maneuver these, these thick glass doors open, two of them, to be able to maneuver their way through. They would have to stand outside waiting for someone to open the door for them, or they have to stand at the exit of the church door hoping that somebody would not brush past them as they left, but would be kind enough to notice that they needed some help. Not accessible. Not accessible at all, and so I also began to realize as I spent some time outside greeting people in the, in the in the vestibule entryway that there was no cutout in the cement for people to even come up onto the sidewalk if they had a wheelchair without somebody sort of propping them up and bending them over and having to sort of step high if you were and low if you were in with a walker. It was just not at all an accessible space. So after some time there in my last year, I preached this sermon and I, uh, or I should say out of this text, and I cast a vision and I said, what if we made it a priority in the next year to make their wheelchair accessible sidewalk to get into our building? What if we made it a priority this year to make our doors where there was just a handicap accessible button they would push and the doors would open for them? And I'm grateful um, that 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 sort of vision, that that hope, that desire, just that expression, it it prompted some folks in the congregation and somebody made a donation for those things to happen. And so uh, I'll share a picture with you, I think we've got it, uh, of of the new handicap accessible uh, 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 ramp that was allowing people to go in the church uh, in a way that that had dignity and respect and didn't require them to ask anyone for help or to wait for someone. No one wants to come to a place and space like that. No one wants that. Now, one might say that some churches would say we need to heal the person who can't see or we need to, we need to somehow take care of the ailment instead of actually cre- changing the system and creating a place and space for people to exist and live in a way that's truly inclusive. I think that Jesus at his time, I think in many ways, he knew. He knew that the, the system was a long way off before we had handicapped accessible bathrooms and doors and, and ramps. And so in the midst of this world, Jesus said, in this case, I will heal the situation. But I don't think that that's always the necessary need. I think instead, maybe we could be a world that would work towards just doing things that are actually quite much more simpler, changing the system in the world around us to be more accessible to those we come encounters with and those we worship with and those we don't worship with because our buildings will not be accessible to them. The issue to heal here, I don't think, is the person, but instead it is the structures. And so, look how the story continues. In verse 6. Then Jesus spits on the ground, made made mud with saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. I don't even know. Verse 7. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam meaning scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing Washed and came back, seeing. You know, I think this is interesting how Jesus does this. When, when, when John tells us this story, he doesn't tell us if Jesus asks this man if he wants to be healed or not, if he consents to this sort of thing, or if that's his actual desire. But we know, we do know that Jesus does do that in many other instances. Uh, he doesn't. He never assumes that somebody's uh, disability is something that they want to be healed, that they don't want, or that they want, they, that, or that they think that something is wrong with them. He he, he never assumes that. It's it's, it's interesting to think that when Jesus walks past a man who's at the pool of of Bethesda, uh, he asks him, do you want to walk? Not just stand up and walk. It's interesting that there's a man who's yelling to Jesus from the side of the road as Jesus is walking through a town, crying out for help, and he's clearly blind. And Jesus doesn't doesn't say, oh, I give you your sight. Clearly, that's what you're crying out for. No, Jesus says, what do you want? He says, I want to see. Jesus doesn't just assume that he knows what this person wants. Jesus says, is this what you want? And because they ask for it, Jesus gives it. And I don't know, I wonder in this story, they, they, they encounter each other. I, I wonder if John just left those details out because there seems to be a strong precedent of Jesus asking for permission or asking if what they want and then giving them that instead of just assuming that something was wrong with them or that there was something about their existence that they wanted to change. But I also think it's interesting. This isn't the only time we see Jesus spit in mud and saliva. <laughs> We also see Jesus do this twice in the book, in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, in, in this, the, the first time he does it, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verse 33, he does some really, like, weird stuff, too. It gets even worse. Okay, this, this is what it says. He says, he puts his fingers in the man's ears. What? Okay, he puts his fingers in the man's, then it says, then spitting on his own fingers, he touches the guy's tongue. What? I mean, and and, and all of a sudden, this person is able to hear again. Verse uh, in chapter eight, just just next, next chapter over in in Mark, in verse t- twenty three, again Jesus spit, just spits on the guy's eyes. He doesn't mix any saliva this time. He just spits on him like a llama, like I'm just like. What in the world? Why are, So so I'm sure you're all like, why is Jesus doing this? This is weird. Let's get some historical context, right? Let's maybe just see, perhaps, let's wonder, let's imagine, we may never know uh, why Jesus might do this. Well, this is interesting to think about. Uh, there's a superstition, there was a superstition during that time around the idea of spit of a renowned person. Uh in the Greek healing cult, as well as in Jewish popular culture and belief, there was this belief that if there was a, a really renowned, re- renowned teacher or there was a really renowned prophet or individual religious leader of the time, that their spit, that their saliva, it actually held healing powers. There was this belief and there was this idea of the time. And I wonder if Jesus was playing into this idea at all. I wonder if he was playing into the idea of, and giving a subtle hint that I am a renowned person. Or, or maybe I wonder if Jesus chose to use these unclean means like dirt and spit to cleanse a man who had been deemed unclean and left to crawl around in the dirt. Spit and dirt usually are not things that we think of as great, clean, wonderful things we want everywhere in our houses, are we? Right? Yet Jesus uses the things that were unclean to cleanse a man who had been deemed unclean. I wonder if Jesus chose to use dust, go with me here, and spit to give this man sight as a reminder that from dust he came. And from dust he shall return one day, and from dust God will create something new in his body again. I mean, I think it's kind of odd, right, for Ash Wednesday. We, we, we went and we stood out by the Barclays Center and we put ashes on people's foreheads. That could be also considered quite odd. But it's also a reminder to people that The very things we put on their forehead are the things that they will one day disintegrate from, but also the things that God gathered up from the earth to make them. We may never know why Jesus used these means to heal this man, but I sure love to wonder and imagine in Scripture. But let's continue on with the story. Maybe it'll continue to make more sense. In verse 8, it says, His neighbors and others knew him as a blind beggar, and they asked each other, Isn't this the man who would sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, no, no, he just looks like the man. But the beggar kept saying, no, no, it's me. I am the same one. I am the same guy. I can see now. I was blind, but now I can see. And they just were not believing this man. The ones who had sight never saw the one who didn't have sight. The ones who had sight couldn't recognize the one who could actually see. And Even worse than that the one who has no sight now is having to even advocate for his voice in the community Because why? Well, they surely we can't trust somebody who's differently abled. Surely we can't trust somebody who's blind He doesn't know what he's thinking about. He's not right in his mind or body and they dismiss him They write him off He's having to fight for his now his voice even though he now has sight they choose not to believe him. They choose not to see him. They likely grew up around him, right? I mean, this is a small, tight-knit community. He likely was in the same place all the time, didn't wander off very often, didn't have anywhere to go, likely didn't have a family. He likely lived and slept outside, yet they do not recognize him. They did not see him. Can I admit something to you? One of the hardest cultural adjustments for me here in New York is when I'm on the train or I'm going down the street and somebody, I see somebody Who's experiencing homelessness or somebody who is in a wheelchair and they're clearly living on the streets somebody who has a mental health challenge and they're living on the streets and I can tell and to not look at them and to see them in the eyes especially when they ask me for money to not look at them and give them an answer It's been very hard for me just to like ignore and just keep walking or to not acknowledge. And Austin is always telling me like, don't look at them. If you look at them, you're asking for it. They're going to come up and they're going to ask for money and they're going to want to talk. Don't look, don't, don't look. And I just have such a hard time not looking. Not for entertainment purposes, but just because there are humans who are struggling. And I'll tell you, that's a hard hard balance for me sometimes because I realize that he's been proven to me time and time again. (laughs) When I do look, it usually does involve an engagement and they do come up and they do talk and they can tell I have compassion and care and so they engage me a little bit longer and a little bit deeper than they did the rest of the people on the subway. And I've had to learn to balance that. What what does that look like? And I'm going to tell you, I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. I've only been here for five months. Give me a break. But it's hard because there's this reality that I thought about when I read this, tor- this text and I thought, there are so many people that I don't look at that are struggling in our pain. And I had a hard time casting the stones at those <laughs> in this story who didn't recognize this man begging on the side of the road who was blind and had been outcast by society because I thought, I do that. I wonder if I would recognize him. I wonder if I would see him. wonder if I would believe him. I think the moral of this story isn't as much about the miracle that this man was given sight, but of the rebuke on all of those who never really had sight to see him, on those who were deaf to his cries for help, on those who desperately were blind to his humanity and mute to his injustices that he suffered. They have this discourse with him back and forth, not really believing him, and then Let's look at how the rest of this discourse wraps up. In verse 13 it says, "Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees." Verse 17, could, we'll skip ahead a little bit. Pharisees again, they they questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, "What's your opinion about this man who healed you?" The man replied, "I don't know. I think he must be a prophet or something." I mean, he like, gave me sight. He's got to have some type of profound gift. Verse 18, the Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man who had been born blind and now could see, so they called in his parents. Okay, so get this. The neighbors, everyone in the neighborhood doesn't believe him. So they're like, let's take him to the religious leaders. They'll sort this out. Religious leaders, they're like, yeah, there's no way. You you couldn't see and now you can see. That's that's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. We don't believe you. They're like, let's just get his parents in here because his parents will know. They'll, they'll, They'll vouch for him. And, I, and it's a longer part of the story, so I'm not going to read it all to you here, but his parents basically show up into the courthouse of the, of the religious leaders, and they say, listen, he's old enough for himself. We're not going to vouch for him. We're not going to speak for him. Basically, they didn't want to get in trouble with their religious establishment. So they're like, he's old enough to speak for himself. They don't even come to their son's aid. They leave him and throw him to the wolves. So back to the original question, does sin cause blindness? Yeah, probably. Physical blindness? No. Spiritual blindness? Yeah, probably. These religious leaders, they were so blind by their own self-righteousness and inaction to see what miracle and great work was right before their very eyes, to see what God was up to. I think some of us at Forefront, we know and we've encountered that all too many times, have we not? When God does something in our own lives or we see God in a new way, in a new light, in a new vision and our neighbors are like, there's no way, I don't believe that God would ever work through you or do that in any way. Or the church we were a part of felt that or said that to us or our family or our parents. We all know many ways what that's like to, to, for God to do something new in us, to, to heal or restore something that the world had told us was broken and not right, and all of a sudden to feel like we are just cast outside and not believed and told that our voices have no value. We're heretics. And that's exactly what happens to this man. I think Jesus tells this story for a really beautiful purpose. He tells us this story to remind us but I don't think the issue here was the story or the, the, the climax of the story was to be able to be like, oh, look, God healed this man who was blind. I don't think that was the climax of the purpose of the story. I think the purpose of the story was to tell us that sometimes we can get so religious, sometimes we can get so comfortable in our ableism or we can get so comfortable in our privilege and so comfortable in certain spaces that we miss the people who are on the outsides because of the privilege we have in the middle that sometimes we can get so comfortable that we think we speak for God and we know God and we can vouch for who and what God's doing in the world and we forget that God is so much more bigger and creative and expansive than we could ever ask, think, believe, or imagine. This man received sight, but he was still fighting for his voice in this story. He was still fighting for his voice, a place to belong. And so church, the neighbors didn't recognize him, the religious people didn't believe him, his parents didn't vouch for him, And I know we all know that feeling. And so my question to you today, as someone who knows that feeling, where do we need to be restorers of creation? For those of us who've been brought into this community of faith and have found a place of belonging and connection and meaning and and life again, voice and sight to see and hear the scriptures in new ways, who is it else on the margins, who is not here, that we need to be restorers of creation where do we need to confront corruption or create a more accessible space? Where do we need to see those in society who have been cast out? Where do we need to be born again, as Reverend Vanita said last week? Where do we, need, do we need do our minds and our hearts and our spirits need to be made new and to be born again, over and over again? Where do we need new sight? Where do we need to see things that we are blind to, that we are blind to, that we are blind to, do we want to be healers of the world? I know I do. So church, what pool are you being sent to go and baptize this spit off of your eyes to wash the dirt away that we might see things and people the way God does and the way God is working through them? Amen, amen. and amen. Holy Spirit, spit on me and give me clear eyes. Amen? <laughs> amen.